0: It sort of is a series, but I wanted to start by talking about uh, tanha, and um, because the more I practice and the more I study, the more I come to think that the ability to recognize tanha is really the most important skill that that we can develop. And I, I'll just talk a little bit about that, and and see where we get this morning. Tanha is a Pali word. Pali is the the language that uh, the Buddha is uh, understood to have something close to have spoken, and it's the text in which, um, the language in which most of the, the uh, original texts are recorded. And it's generally translated, it's glossed as Desire. But the word does it's sort of like Eskimos and snow. I mean, Eskimos, you know, they've got all these 39 words for snow. They don't and and in Pali there are at least two dozen words that we would just translate as desire. And so Tanha is understood um, it's described experientially, it's described as a, a particular kind of Desire, a particular kind of wanting, that's experienced in the way that we experience thirst. In fact, that's one of the one of the meanings of tanha, is thirst. Um, it's a it's a it's a kind of wanting that we don't we don't feel like we have control over, right? It's, we just are thirsty. We're hungry. Um, and it's, it's described uh, in the Buddhist teachings as the origin, uh, the origin of dukkha, of suffering. Dukkha is the Pali word that's translated mostly as suffering, but probably most deeply means just a structural dissatisfaction with life and the experience of life. So the Buddha says this is, you know, tanha is the... Uh, uh, the origin, the source, the, the, the source of arising of dukkha. The Buddha, the Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Was his was what he taught. In fact, there are some places where his, his, his uh, instruction is translated as, I teach <coughs> only suffering and the end of suffering. And then there are people who say, He doesn't say only. And then there are people who say, I teach only one thing. But basically, dukkha and the cessation of dukkha is the uh, uh, so this is at the heart of what the Buddha was trying to get us to understand in order to free ourselves from this this fundamental dissatisfaction with, with uh, our experience tanha is in the um, in the, in the structure of, of the Buddha's teaching, it comes as the second of the noble truths. The four, actually interesting, the four noble truths are, are you know, the truth of suffering, the truth of the origin of suffering, the truth of the cessation, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation. Interestingly, if you look through the, the whole Pali Canon, which is about like this, the Buddha taught for 45 years, so it's, it's a bookshelf that's about maybe three feet across. I guess it depends on how small the type is. <laughs> but it's, it's a substantial amount of material. And this formula, such as suffering, such the origin, such the cessation, such the path leading to the cessation, occurs scattered uh, dozens of times throughout the canon. And in a few of those times, that formula is labeled as uh, noble truths. Some scholars now think that the, that label is a later addition to the canon. Um, and Stephen Batchelor even goes so far as to abandon the whole notion of noble truths entirely and to just call it the four. <laughs> um, I think of it as the four teachings uh, but they're understood generally as the truths, so I refer to them as the truths after giving the that you know ninety second disclaimer <laughs> um, and so understanding tanha is to understand its context the four the four truths the first the first of these truths, the first of the teachings, oh, let me just say something. Stephen points out that when the Buddha presents the four truths, he presents each of them with a task. So he, he sometimes refers to them as the four tasks. So the first truth, I'll talk about the task and what it is, the first truth is the truth of suffering, or is the, the nature of suffering, the reality of dukkha. And, and it's interesting that the Buddha didn't provide an abstract dictionary-type definition. He listed a bunch of experiences that were dukkha. So here here goes. Birth is unsatisfactory. I mean, we may not have been there, but the reports are that we all started out by going, "No." <laughs> <laughs> Birth is is suffering. Illness is suffering. Aging is suffering. Death is suffering. Pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, is dukkha. Not getting what you want is dukkha. Getting what you don't want is dukkha. And losing what you cherish is dukkha. It's a pretty fine list. It's interesting to notice that uh, wedding celebrations aren't dukkha. Crème brûlée for dessert, not dukkha. The pleasant stuff, the day at the beach, not dukkha. It's not on that list. If I look at the list closely, what I notice is that everything on that list is unpleasant. There's nothing there that you would order up for yourself, really. I mean, birth has already happened. The rest of this stuff, we could do without. (laughs) Right? It's just... It's on our dance card anyway, whether we like it or not. <laughs> I think that the task that's associated with this first truth is to understand it. And there's a tendency to look at this list and to fixate on it and to take it as something existential so that we say illness is... Dukkha equals illness. If we get rid of dukkha, we get rid of illness. There's a tendency to, there's a tendency to, to regard these things. The second, the second truth is the truth of tanha, is the truth of the origin, sam, die, which is the word that means arising. The, the, the source of dukkha is tanha. There are three three flavors of tanha, subjectively. The first is described as, uh, well, it's kama tanha. Kama meaning uh, sensuality, sensual, uh, the desire for sense, for pleasant sensual experience. It's really deep in us. We don't wake up in the morning and say, that restaurant was horrible last night, let's go back, (laughs) you know. We don't look. We don't look for the unpleasant stuff. I hate that TV show. Let's watch the whole series. You know, We, why, we just don't do that. You know, um, it's it's built in at a very deep level. Bawa tanha is the is the uh, is the impulse to become something, to become in the future. To have an identity, I want to be the owner of a Porsche Cayenne Hybrid, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to be the boss. I want to be a partner. I want to be a parent. I want to be. I want to take on an identity. It's up to become, but also to to survive. I want to be in the future. And the third flavor is vibhava tanha, which is that craving to make this unpleasant stuff go away. And at the extreme, you have people who are willing to blow themselves up to make it all go away in an effort to blow up the stuff that should go away. Now, Tanha is described, and the Buddha described it phenomenologically, subjectively, in pure subjective terms. But I, I, I've been thinking recently that it, it, it helps to identify it if you can find a physiological correlate. So, for example, when you're hungry, we have the, physic- we have the, the experience of being hungry. We know what it feels like. But we also recognize that it's not something that we are doing. It's something that happens, that arises because of the, the chemistry in the body. The glucose levels are low in the blood, and you know, the brain wants a little bit more juice, and so we, the urge arises.? Right? Um, hunger, thirst. Uh, these are impersonal physical conditions where there is a subjective experience of it, right? So the subjective experience of cold is the experience of the body losing more energy than it's taking in uh, in terms of heat. And tanha, I think of as, well, if you, if you think about the human organism, uh, assuming that evolution is in your cosmology twenty five percent of the American public still thinks the sun goes around the earth I'm sorry? i 'm sorry anybody else see that poll <laughs> did you saw the poll somebody somebody nodded they saw the poll. OK, so it's only 10 percent. <laughs> um, but over the course of the evolution of life on the planet, every cell, the cells, the, every cell wants to survive, every cell wants to reproduce. Our ancestors, any, any uh, well, any, any being that didn't care about surviving probably wouldn't have lasted long enough to pass its genes on. So we've inherited, wow, what, five to seven thousand generations of humans plus all of the, everything back, survival as an instinct. It's built into the body. It comes with the territory. The impulse to reproduce every cell in the body. What a surprise that these are very powerful energies and we know what the what the uh, subjective experience of these things are. <clears throat> we we experience them phenomenologically, but we also can understand them as impersonal. Um, you know, the impersonal playing out of. I guess you could say evolutionary history, our our genetic inheritance, our evolutionary inheritance. Tanha is the the subjective experience. I find it helpful to think of it this way. Tanha is the subjective experience of this evolutionary inheritance. Experience that is pleasant. If you didn't care whether your experience was pleasant or unpleasant you're likely to damage yourself well before you can pass on any, any genes uh, just because you wouldn't care whether getting hurt or mangled or destroyed it would be. But pain is a, suggests, you know, we, we withdraw from pain from unpleasant experience. From pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair. We don't like the not getting what we want. Not getting what we want and the getting what we don't want. We don't like it. But often we think, I shouldn't be doing this. But this isn't anything that we are doing. It's sort of, it comes with the territory. Pleasant experience. The desire for pleasant experience is built into the organism. When we want pleasant experience, when we find ourselves wanting it, it's like finding ourselves, you know, involved in uh, sexual energy. You know, it's the energy is there. the the The, the posture is there, and we sort of jump on, uh, in in. Um, Tom Wolfe's book, *I Am Charlotte Simmons*. Anybody read that? I know it's one of those books that you shouldn't drop on your toe. It's like that big, <laughs> but I do a huge amount of driving, as some of you know. And so it was a book on tape some years ago. It took it's like thirty hours of listening. Well, that was a, you know, a couple trips to Phoenix. That was it. Um, but <clears throat> it, during, it's a it's the story of a of a young woman who goes to. Duke, I don't think they call it Duke of the Book. I can't remember what they call it, but it was sort of modeled on Duke and Duke University. And, and she goes into, the, he follows her around into her classes and other places, and she go, they go into a neuroscience class, and the professor is saying, "Ah, oh, we're just like a pebble that's tossed across the room that becomes conscious halfway across the room, becomes conscious, and it says, oh, I want to go that way, the direction it's going. There's identification that happens. Uh, you know, I want pleasant experience. I'm hungry. We identify with these things that <clears throat> come up based in our in our organism. The desire to survive, the, the longing to survive. It may not be active at every moment. <clears throat> when you're eating that creme brulee, you're not Craving. Well, that's not entirely true. I've, I've, you know, I've sat on retreats thinking, on the next retreat, <laughs> I'll really get concentrated. <laughs> Have you ever done that? It's just great. Well, this meditation's not going so well, but the next one. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's pretty, pretty... But the idea is that one pleasant experience in the midst of it, in the midst of getting what you want, it's not dukkha. So that list of, of elements in that first truth, those are unpleasant. They're unpleasant. You know. Birth was unpleasant without any socialization. You know? I think it's it's universally unpleasant. Pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you cherish incredibly painful. Those are painful experiences and when those experiences encounter tanha, dukkha arises. So in a sense what's going on is that we are taking an unpleasant experience and we're slathering on a whole other layer of unpleasantness. That makes sense? So we're adding this resistance to the, the aversion to the not wanting, the wishing it were different, the needing it to be different, needing it to be different, just like we need a drink of water. We need to eat. I'm hungry. It's not our fault. It's not something we are doing. We just feel that that impulse arises, and like that, identifying with I'm, I'm hungry. The Buddha's the Buddha's teaching his task for the second truth is to abandon Tanha. Presumably without Tanha, um, Pain would still be pain. But it wouldn't have the I mean you I've I've sat meditation, and my knee starts to hurt, and I start thinking, mm, that's, maybe I should move. Oh, if I don't move, I won't be able to get up. I, don't, I have to, you know, and the story goes on, I'll be crippled for life. I, I sat next to some woman who couldn't sit during a retreat once because she pushed through the pain, and am I pushing? There's pain in my knee, and now there's pain in my head. So tanha is to be abandoned. It's the second of the teachings, the second truth. The third truth is pretty interesting, too. Third truth is described as, well, the the Pali word is naroda. And it means cessation. And if you look at the text, it's pretty clear that the cessation is the cessation of tanha. So the Four Truths about the cessation of dukkha is about the cessation of tanha. The origin, what turns aging into dukkha is the not wanting it. Now that doesn't mean that it's any less unpleasant. But we add, when we add a different layer that layer of needing it to be different. We go for the Botox, we go for the whatever. Um, The word Naroda translates as to plug up the leaks, to stop the leaking. So the Buddha's vision is that we're walking around leaking Tanha all over the place. Tanha shows up as greed, hatred, delusion. I'll talk a little bit about that probably next week or the week after. So the cessation of Tanha is, is what the Buddha is teaching. I teach suffering in the end of suffering. I teach Dukkha in the end of Dukkha. The arising of dukkha is tanha, when it engages pleasant experience, not when it engages the creme brulee, when it engages the losing a cherished item or friend. And the fourth of the truths, the fourth of the teachings, is the Eightfold Path, which which is presented as the The path to the end of suffering, the path leading to the end of suffering. I actually think of it as the way of being without dukkha. It's often, you know, when I first heard the Eightfold Path, I thought too many, too many folds. (laughs) I couldn't remember them. You know, and then they came along with the twelve links of dependent origination, the seven <laughs> factors of awakening, the five, you know. But eight was just too many, and and I was hoping for you know, cut to the chase. What's the what's the one what's the one full well, abandoned tanha. But the eightfold path, there are eight elements, and I don't think it matters how long you've been practicing. Most most people, you know, the eight go by pretty quick and they don't become the focus of, of uh, attention. Let me just rattle them off. And I'll rattle them off the way they're usually presented. Right view, or right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. It's not eight separate elements. In, in my, my group in Davis, we think of it as a basketball the Eightfold Basketball. Here's the Eightfold Basketball. It's a sphere. It's made of rubber. It's brown. It's got little dimples on it. It's got black stripes on it. It's filled with compressed air. weighs about two pounds, maybe a little more, about 15 inches across. Is that eight? I think that's eight. You can't play basketball with just the brown. It's, it's a basketball. And the Eightfold Path is an eightfold path it's an integrated path it's not just a one fold path it's not just mindfulness meditation and and there are people who will you know distill out the concentration part and and spend a lot of time cultivating uh, jhana absorptions which is a fabulous way to spend time and it's helpful for insight as well but the part of it that's part of the path is integrated with the other elements just like the color of the rubber is brown or on the surface anyway I guess it's black below the surface and, the, and this eightfold path is, the, is described as the path or the way of being without dukkha. When you hear it translated, right speech, right action, right livelihood, the word right, when we hear it, we often hear right as opposed to wrong. And it's a translation of the Pali word sama. And really what it means is, is uh, appropriate, sometimes it's translated as, as wise, uh, up the hill on the, the drum that goes around on the entrance to the retreat center, it's wise, I think is not right. It's wise, mindfulness, wise. But what it really means it's that it's, it's, it's um, speech that does not give rise to dukkha. It's speech that leads to the cessation of dukkha, or speech that occurs without giving rise, and that doesn't give rise to dukkha. So that's, the, that's what sama means. So even when you say right view, right understanding, it's the understanding that doesn't give rise to dukkha. And what doesn't give rise to dukkha? Well, the third, the third truth, the cessation of tanha. The abandonment of tanha is what the Buddha says we're supposed to do with that. So right view... Right understanding is the understanding that enables us to not take the bait that comes with tanha. Tanha works, our wanting stuff happens this way, our mind seems to work this way. Just check and see if this works for you. It's like a moth in the flame. Hachan Jumnian threw this out, I don't know, 15 years ago when he was here and it's just, it's just, it's been a flame for me. Um. The moth sees the flame, the object of desire. It's bright. Everything else is dark. It's all it sees. And it flies right into it. What it doesn't see is its own compulsion. It's focused on the thing, on the object. It doesn't see its own compulsion. Mindfulness practice gives us, provides us the spaciousness to be able to see the whole field, to to take in the whole field and see that ourselves. But when we are when we are when we are looking at that flame, whether it's that Porsche or whether it's whatever it is, it's the promotion, it's the you know the social policy, or you know whatever whatever the object of desire or the object of aversion. That's the bait. And we, when we snap at it, that there's a, in the Tibetan tradition, Pema Chodron talks about, uses the word shenpa, swallowing the hook, taking the bait, flying at the flame. The idea is to abandon that, to not take the bait. So we have this eightfold way of being. And it's often broken up into uh, three different clumps of folds. What do you call these? Elements, I guess. So, and, and actually this the threefold division appears in the canon. Uh, and, and the words are placed in the Buddha's mouth in, in these texts. So He says they're the wisdom elements right, understanding and right intention. Then there are the the sila elements, the ethical practice, the ethical behavior. Your life off the cushions, right, speech, action, livelihood. And then there are the samadhi elements, the meditation elements, which are right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. It's interesting that... uh, the path has so the, the, there's one mindfulness element there's four intention speech action livelihood behavioral elements uh, you could break that eightfold path down into if you were a, a, a sociologist or an anthropologist you could say belief in you're treating it as a religion beliefs and practices so you've got a twofold, two divisions. You've got right understanding. You've got the beliefs, and then you've got speech, action, livelihood, effort, um, mindfulness, and concentration. You've got beliefs and practices. But I actually prefer to, I, for myself, I, I I break it into uh, uh, four four clumps. I, I recognize right understanding as a separate as by itself, and then I, I lump intention, right intention, speech, action, livelihood as the off-the-cushion, walking around, living your life day-to-day stuff, which it seems to me it's half of the path. That's really the path is focused on what it's like day-to-day, not just when you're sitting on the cushion. And then right effort, I see as by itself. Right? Effort is interesting. Classically it's taught as the effort to uh, cultivate the wholesome, sustain the wholesome that's already arisen, to abandon the unwholesome that's arisen, and to keep the unwholesome from arising in the future. Which is a long way of By wholesome, I mean, then then we get into what is wholesome and what's not wholesome. But this is part of the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is the way of being without dukkha, without tanha, without falling for tanha's bait. So right effort seems to me to be about the energy, the effort it takes to abandon tanha. You know, the, the general sense, if it feel good, feels good, do it, go with the flow, da da da. You know where that's getting us. <laughs> that's how we live our life. You know, go with what's pleasant. You know, if it feels good, do it. But the right effort is the effort to abandon Tana. It takes effort because that flame is so appealing. The bait is hard to resist. Ajahn Buddhadasa used to call it bait, fancy food, bait. Take the bait. And we cultivate snapping at the bait and getting reeled in by tanha, by Mara as tanha is anthropomorphized. So right effort I see standing by itself. And then mindfulness and, and concentration. Achan Cha, Jack uh, illustrated this to me once by holding up a pen. He said, Achan Cha would hold up a pen and he said, This is meditation. This end, mindfulness. This end, concentration. You don't get mindfulness without some stability of mind and without being able to recognize that you're not stable. <laughs> You don't get concentration without some mindfulness. You don't get stability without mindfulness. But this is the the state of mind, a stable, ongoing, moment-to-moment mindfulness that enables us to see what's going on and to respond, to recognize. Well, recognizing tanha as tanha, we're back at the first of those elements. Right understanding. Or the understanding that enables us to abandon tanha. We, if our understanding is that we are going to make ourselves happy, that we are going to satisfy ourselves by getting what we want by chasing our dreams, you know, the, the cultural. If we, if that's what we think, then we're going to be dissatisfied. If we have that understanding, that's probably, well, you know, that's how we live our life. Isn't it how we navigate? We look for what we want and we, we try to make it happen. That's, you know, and uh, I always think of Dr. Phil and how he would say, How's that working for you? you know? And the understanding, right view, right perception, they're all, it's the, it's the way we regard the world. And this is also, um, makes sense to me in terms of our, of our evolution. We have this incredible computer, this, this incredible processing power that enables us to be, as organisms, very successful on the planet. And it it works by enabling us. I mean, I can outsmart my dog because I can think... You don't have to think much ahead of your dog. (laughs) You know. (laughs) And and you hold up a treat, a flame, a bait. They're totally, totally gone. Well, unless they're chasing a rabbit. (laughs) That's a brighter flame. But still, it's easy to outsmart your dog because we've got some conceptual capabilities. We've got the ability to abstract and to plot and scheme in the service of tanha, in the service of surviving, in the service of creating in the service of creating experience that's pleasant or in the, in the, in the service of the intention to create. And so right understanding, is classically described as understanding the Four Noble Truths, understanding dukkha and its origin, dukkha and its cessation. And the distortions of perception, the distortions of view, of understanding, Right understanding, it's just what do you think is going on? That's your understanding. What's happening? And it includes recognizing a pen. It includes narrative and story. What's going on politically? What's going on historically, globally? Global warming is a narrative. <clears throat> right. right? understanding the Buddha, Buddha... pointed out that the distortions of perception, the distortions of understanding, are essentially not seeing impermanence. We understand about impermanence. We know about impermanence. But it's viscerally not, you know. <clears throat> so we say, yeah, I understand impermanence. Oh, I broke my favorite mug. <laughs> you know? I just lost my, whatever. Things, things change people change and we get bent we don't recognize anicca dukkha we you know and we we look for satisfaction in things that are inherently incapable of providing it because they're impermanent there's nothing we can't... If you got everything that you wanted, if the world were organized the way you wanted it for one second, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> there's, there's no coming back. Because you know, it's going to change. So it's, it's, not notice, it's not knowing that stuff. Viscerally. We know about it. There's a difference between knowing about and knowing it, I know about how to hit a curveball. But I couldn't hit my son's curveball when he was 12. It was embarrassing. Because i was sure I could. <laughs> you know. Keep your eye on the ball. What's so hard about that? No. So it's the understanding that enables us to abandon Tanha. It's the understanding that going for the bait. It's an understanding. We can know about it and that can direct our attention to our experience to see whether it's true. We can test for ourselves. This is all something we would validate ourselves. And then we have intention, speech, action, livelihood. These are the walking around elements. Your intention always flows from Understanding. Hmm. If our understanding is that things should be a particular way, then our intention is going to be in the service of making it that way. We want things to be secure. We We don't like this impermanence business. We don't like the big impermanence particularly. We don't even want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. I mentioned last time about the, excuse me, I was reading this story in the Times about how doctors die. And uh, it turns out they get themselves to hospice a lot quicker because they've seen it. And in the story, the guy was saying, the hospice director was saying, well, our job in hospice is to create the highest quality of life for the time remaining. <laughs> and I thought, geez, we're all in hospice. <laughs> oh, we, we, we don't like to think about it that way. I'm going to live forever or die trying. <laughs> So we like security. We like the stability that comes from our ideas about how things are. Things are this way. You know? Because the Buddha said. Or the Bible said. Or, you know, neuroscience says. Who knows? I was talking with... Uh, Lee Brasington, about um, dark matter and dark energy. And he sort of uh, poo-pooed them. And I said, wow, but you know, you, they measure the galaxy spinning and it turns this way and you can tell it's... And he said, no, no. He said, all those measurements depend on the assumption that the speed of light is a constant. <laughs> I went, oh, yeah. Oh, well, Who knows? Of course it's a constant, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just like for my dog, I've been a constant. Pretty much. Although... um, So our intention is to make things stable. If our understanding is that by making things stable we'll make ourselves happy, and our intention will be to make things stable. If we think that the way things will be better is if everybody understands live and let live, you know, then we'll act, we'll act on the basis of our understanding. The, the unskillful intentions are classically uh, listed as um, greed, ill will, and cruelty. And we don't think of ourselves as being cruel, usually. But we often wish unpleasant experience upon another. And I, that's m- my interpretation of, of cruelty in this sense. And, and we use it. You know, if you don't get the car back by 10 o'clock on Friday, you can't drive it for, you know, we're threatening, unpleasant. Yeah, perhaps that's what the Buddha meant by cruelty. The skillful intention, skillful intentions, often is described just simply as renunciation. Renunciation of what? Guess. Tanha. The skillful intention is the renunciation of tanha based on an understanding that ain't going to make you happy. It's also described often as the, the Brahma Vihara's, Right intention. Metta. Instead of uh, ill will, um, equanimity, compassion, instead of cruelty, mudita. Now, these are these are intentions that don't flow out of out of tanha when Tanaha has been abandoned or just ignored. Sometimes, you know, I think uh, the discussion about free will is, you know, it's gone on for a few years Um, without being resolved. I, I sort of think we have, I'm not sure about free will, I think we have free won't. We can, when we can recognize tanha arising in our experience and dukkha arising, we can just not take the bait. And we cannot take the bait in the service of not making things worse. (laughs) Um, And we've got speech, action, and livelihood. And these are the elements that are usually formulated in terms of the precepts precepts, you know, that are usually the, the five precepts that the Buddha, that the Buddha prescribed, That uh, uh, no, and I'm, the shorthand is don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in harmful sexuality, don't speak falsely and no drugs and alcohol. These weren't the Buddha's ideas. The first four were the same vows that were made by the Jains, the Jains at the time. So these were sort of ambient in the culture. Mm-hmm. And, and often right speech is taken, or not speaking falsely, is taken as a, in a fundamentalist kind of way, don't lie. But really, right speech is speech that's in the service of abandoning tanha, of not making things worse. It's not necessarily finessing the truth you know, if Anne Frank knocks on, if Anne Frank, if the Nazis knock on the door and ask for Anne Frank, you say, if they ask, is she here? Do you say, what is, what depends on what, what do you mean by is? <laughs> you know, that didn't work for Bill Clinton. <laughs> Not going to work for, for Anne Frank. No. Or the, or, I think I t- told the story about my friend who works in hospice. And I'd been working with this woman who, for several weeks, and they'd become close. And on the morning that she was to die, she looked at my friend and she said, I know you're a Buddhist, but you do believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection, don't you? And Lynn said, Of course. And she said, You could just see the woman relax. <clears throat> That was speech in the service of the attenuation of dukkha. It's not a fundamentalist kind of thing. You know, each of those precepts—you can, you know, not taking what's not freely given. No drugs and alcohol to the point of heedlessness is not the essence of hospice at the appropriate time. So it can be kind. It can be. It can be compassionate taking what's not freely given. If somebody's drowning and you got got somebody's rope in the back of their truck, do you wait until they come back to the truck to ask, or do you just take the rope? No. The litmus is the attenuation of the abandonment of tanha. Speech, action, livelihood. So the Eightfold Path is a path It's a way of being without falling for tanha's bait. And tanha's bait is pretty pervasive. And it comes with the organism. And we identify with a lot of it and we judge ourselves. I shouldn't be wanting this, I shouldn't be. But really the body is doing it. The organism is doing it. Our genetic inheritance is our evolutionary inheritance is the culprit. We just jump on, like the consciousness with the pebble. We say, ah, oh, yeah, I'm hungry. I'm hungry? Hunger. Hunger. And we add the I'm in there. But I'm is not such a bad, Is not, I mean, it may be a delusion, but it's not a mistake. In order, I, I think of this consciousness sort of like the GPS, you know, in, in your car, you know, and it's got this map. It right? shows you where everything is and that's that's our map it's all the stories it's our understanding and usually you know we depend on our we cling to our views this is the way things are because if we walked into a if we walked into a, a room we, with complete beginner's mind it's like what's going on what is it what is it? we don't even know what it to know what a chair is, or a person. Or so we, we bring our understanding with us, the map. But the map only works if you've got that little blue dot there that shows you where you are, so you know how to get from here to there. And that blue dot is the self, it's the, it's the fabrication that enables us to engage conceptually and be so powerful uh, survival machines on the planet. it's it's a it's a virtual self it's a virtual dot and we think in terms of cause and effect whether cause and effect actually is in the world the way we understand it <clears throat> that's the way that's the way we think tanha comes brings all that our our inheritance our biological inheritance brings all of that with it And the, the idea isn't to not survive, but it's to recognize that these impulses may be helpful at some times and may be not so helpful at other times. It's to bring some wisdom uh, into the mix. Wisdom, understanding mixed with mindfulness. What's present? And results in a how do we, how do we behave in this situation? The Eightfold Path is both a path to the cessation of dukkha as well as a way of being. It's the goal and the path. And I find that understanding Tanha as something that's organism based, that's based in the, the you know, evolutionary history, and that dukkha is when Tanha engages unpleasant experience that first truth i find that it enables me to observe more clearly cuz i don't take it's not my fault i'm just watching what's happening here <clears throat> you now i don't need to blame myself my mind is wandering during meditation how come i can't i've been meditating for 30 years i can how come 40 years i've 50 i my mind wanders. The mind wanders. The mind is checking things out just to make sure that everything's okay. It's part of the scanning the environment. You know, This stuff, hap- stuff happens fast. When somebody cuts you off on the freeway, you don't say, I think there's someone moving and I'm going... Uh, the, right, the right decision here would be to apply my foot to the brake and press with so many foot pounds. You, the foot just hits the brake and then the adrenaline kicks in and then the finger goes up. And the idea is to, is to be able to see the reactivity and, and not get sucked in. So the suffering and the end of suffering, dukkha and the end of dukkha, something that occurs within us, it's an impersonal thing that happens And seeing more clearly, seeing you know, leveraging with a slightly different perspective, I find is really is helpful. Seeing it as an impersonal manifestation of the conditions of our existence. I mean, after all, our existence, this life, just happened. To me, it did. I wasn't involved in the planning. Maybe one of you guys was. Oh, no, good. <laughs> yeah. So let me let me uh, just pause. We've got a minute or three. In case there are questions or comments or thoughts or disagreements, please. Would you tell us all four of the tasks that go with the four? Yeah, to understand dukkha. To understand dukkha is the first task. The second task is to abandon tanha to realize naroda, realize cessation, and to cultivate the path. Those are the four tasks. <clears throat> Please. Can you explain uh, tanha that uh, uh, is greater than one's needs? Well, that's really interesting. There's a, there's a wonderful little story about how the Buddha was... <clears throat> sitting in, med- in the in the suit, as he's sitting in meditation, and the thought arises: I'm an awakened one. I could uh, I could be. A, wonder if I could be a ruler, a king, and rule without causing pain and distress. He says, "Of course, I'm." And then Mara shows up, the personification of of temptation, shows up and says, "Yeah, you're an awakened one. You could, you could turn." The, Mount Everest into gold, if you wanted. You've mastered all the, the worldly dharmas. You've mastered the, the, the Itipada, the powers. You could do anything. And then, then the Buddha comes too again. He has that little diversion. And he says, you know, even two mountains of gold wouldn't be enough. We want more than our needs. What we need is a rational, conceptual thing is not the way the organism is, is designed. The de- organism is designed for more, more, more. Because those organisms in the past that were more compulsive, more obsessive, they were more likely to survive. So we inherit that, that on and on and again and again and again and more and more and more, even when we don't need it. It's just comes, it's the genetic inheritance. How does it get so twisted into, you know, like, wanting to be more fashionable ah because because what enables us to succeed in our social environment is to be is to is to not be smacked around by adults first and then friends and then etc so and it and it helps us if we are in a position of some Well, I hate to use the word power, but the ability to persuade others to do things, to get others to do things through various means, either threat or or reward, it, it helps our survival. And it's just built in. Those of us, those of our ancestors who said, ah, enough of day's work, I think I'll lie out here in the sun, they were lunch before they were fathers or mothers. That's, that's my understanding, so. Yeah? How do you integrate these teachings into a professional career when you are given a role and goals and people to lead and you can't just say, oh, well. Mm, well you can, <laughs> but you probably aren't in that career for very long. <laughs> Right, well, you know, the idea of maintaining our life, surviving well, and, and creating a pleasant environment leads us to do a whole bunch of different things depending on our understanding of the best options open to us. So that map, that GPS map, uh, charts out, a, you know, if you have no musical talent, you're probably not going to go and audition for the San Francisco Symphony. If you have some management skill and it works well, and you've got some, then you may look for an opportunity to build a livelihood with that. Right livelihood is a livelihood that does not enhance tanha. Jack tells a story about how he once uh, uh, someone came up to him after a retreat and said, "You know, I'm I'm a lawyer, and I'm wondering if it's right livelihood. It's not too bad most of the time, but often I have to lie to my clients. you what do, you, you know, what, do you, what do you think?" So so the idea, the, the idea is to be able to recognize uh, Tanha. So it said at the beginning, recognize Tanha. If livelihood is, you know, if your livelihood is causing you a lot of post-traumatic stress, you know, if your livelihood is causing you to do things that are painful to yourself and others, your dissatisfaction might have to do with the way you're living. We're, st- we're completely free to pick up a livelihood or drop it. Well, we may not be able to pick it up if we don't have skills and can't get into the interview, but you know, we just have to engage the experience. And is being a file clerk right livelihood? Is it right livelihood if you're working for Halliburton? Or as opposed to Greenpeace? There's no bright line here. The idea is that your, the cessation of dukkha for you only happens with you. you know, if, if, if we all were one, then the Buddha's awakening would awaken us all. Well, it helps. He's able to point to it. But really, in the end, your relationship to your livelihood is your own. The engagement with the conditions of your work is is your own, and it's something it's a, it's to be crafted as an art. There's no bright line science to it. I'm not sure that's helpful, <laughs> but um, life. There is no instruction manual. <laughs> you know the instruction manual that comes with life were parents, and they were just as confused as. <laughs> As, as we are. So the Buddha is saying, navigate in terms of these four teachings and use that to, to help yourself live with less stress, with less dissatisfaction, with less suffering. Yeah? Is the second task of abandoning dukkha similar to... Letting your thoughts just go by. Yeah, you wouldn't take the bait. Abandoning tanha. Just don't take the bait. You see, no. that's ah, oh, that's that's a Porsche Cayenne hybrid. I mean, it's not that they're not there, but you it, just don't. Right. He says, regard these things like the, a royal chariot. Beautiful. It's a museum piece. Lovely. But to need it, to want it, to make it me and mine. No, it's going to be. It's going to lead to uh, certainly distress. You drive off off the the lot and you get dinged by the <coughs> by this guy who's cutting in on you. The next thing you know, this was this is going to be a great moment. And my gosh, it's agony from the start. So yeah, letting go, and it's something to it's something to practice that you can get better at. Yeah, when last last of, one. When you speak of spaciousness, uh-huh. can you tell me what you mean by that? I just mean um, I'm talking about a a a posture, a mental posture that allows everything in, that doesn't that doesn't focus on a particular object to the exclusion of other objects. That's open to the experience. That's present to be as near to the experience that's present both subjectively in terms of your perceptions your you know the the, the skandas the experience of body perception volition feeling it includes it all consciousness all of it is 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 can be present it's just an openness dukkha what's the physical feeling of dukkha contraction. A little bit of contraction. So the way we re- relate to unpleasantness, eh, maybe we push it away, but that dukkha is contraction. What happens when you meet something pleasant? Open. It's Just a little bit of relaxation. This is, you know, this is it's very subtle, and you, but you can notice it. The spaciousness will be noticing the relationship to the pleasant and unpleasant. It notices not just the flame, but the compulsion to fly into it. And if you notice that compulsion, you can say, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, got the coffee mug, got the scars to prove it. You know, and sometimes we can't help it. I, you know, I, I remember buying a, an Apple Newton and walking across the floor of the Moscone Center saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm about to spend... I don't know, seven or eight hundred dollars on this thing, but you know, it's still in my closet. You know, I just focused on it, and all I could do was, say, this is what it feels like. I'm, I want it. You know, so spaciousness is noticing, not just the flame, but the impulse too. So thank you guys. I will see you next week.